this morning's talk will be on the topic of aridity and will be a reflection on the second of these four poems, which is traditionally known as the Dutaka Sutta, the Discourse of Eight on the Wrong. But these titles, as I pointed out, are, are really just mnemonic devices. They take a word from the first line of the text and then give that as the title of the whole thing. But they don't actually say much about the topic or the theme as such. So this is the second one. Wrong-minded people do voice opinions, as do truth-minded people too. When an opinion is stated, the sage is not drawn in. There's nothing arid about the sage. How can I enthrall to longing self-satisfied and self-realized, rise above my own point of view. As I know myself, so I articulate myself. The person, unsolicited, who tells others of his morals and offers opinions about himself the good declare to be ignoble. Beggars at peace, completely at ease, do not flaunt their virtues. Here I am, there's no one like me in the world. The good opine that they are noble. He who loves teachings that are biased contrived and obscure, seeing only his own advantage, rests on a peace with shaky foundations. You seize the teaching that suits those views to which you're committed and cannot give up. According to our commitments, do we reject or embrace a teaching. Nowhere does a lucid one hold contrived views about it is or it is not. How could he succumb to them, having let go of illusions and conceit? He's uninvolved. The involved get drawn into conflicting opinions about the Dharma. What opinion can you dispute with one who's uninvolved? And how? He does not take up or discard any view. He has shaken them all off right here. Um, in my own 
working with these poems, I read them through again and again, sometimes out loud. And what I find um, particularly engaging about these texts is that the very form of the argument or the verse-by-verse sequence itself somehow seems to um, collude with the main ideas. It's very difficult to pin anything down in these verses. There's not, um, I feel, uh, an argument that's trying to lead us to a particular point of view. It's very much an apophatic literature here. Apophatic meaning um, getting rid of things rather than adding things on, what in Christian theology you call a via negativa, a negative view. In other words, it's about pairing things off, stripping things away, and almost relentlessly, and at times perhaps stretching our credibility. How can you really live in this world without any views and opinions? Wouldn't you then be unable to join a political party or um, hold beliefs in any religious teaching? How can you do that in reality? And that, I think, is in a sense perhaps one of the core questions that is raised by this approach is this might sound all very well if you live in a cave on a mountain, but if you actually have to make decisions in the so-called real world, how can you do that without having views and opinions? And in a sense, I feel that is what is the, uh, the koan, the huada, uh, the question, the puzzle, uh, the challenge that lies in these verses. And of course other texts, other um, suttas and, and uh, writings we find in other traditions of the same uh, kind. How do we translate this into our day-to-day specific existence? But I'm going to leave that as a question. And perhaps suggest we all ponder and mull over how we might do that. In the first verse here, we um, uh, again get two very uh, central ideas. First, clearly that these um, uh, verses, this poet, is not interested in making any claim to truth. I mentioned, I think, on the first day how um, although Buddhism is traditionally based on notions like the Four Noble Truths or the the Two Truths, in these verses and elsewhere also in the Sutta Nipata, there's um, a considerable suspicion about claiming something to be true particularly in a metaphysical sense. There's another verse, this is in Sutta Nipata 8.4.3. Why would the priest say, this is true? With whom would he argue, that is false? And we find this again and again. The true and false, right and wrong, 
are again simply part of this oppositional thinking that seems to lie at the very root of what the poet here is questioning or critiquing. He wants somehow to suspend all of that and live from a perspective that's not um, a priori divided uh, by making the choice, this is true, that is false. Again, that goes against so much of our, um, you know, our everyday discourse. Well, the discourse in so many different fields seem to be premised on true, false. Here he's questioning that. When an opinion is stated, the sage is not drawn in. I have to say a few words here about the language. Uh, You'll find in my translation I use the word opinion, I use the word view, and they're being treated more or less synonymously. But in the Pali, there is just one word for an opinion is stated. It's vadati. Um, to li- literally means to speak. But here it's being used in the sense of uh, to utter an opinion. Now, in later Buddhism... Uh, Vardati uh, became a quite respectable sort of thing. And in fact, we're all familiar with the word terra vada. Vada is the same word. It means what is spoken by the terra, the elders. But that very same word, vada, vardati, is here being, is actually the target of pretty much all of these four poems. Vardati, holding a view or an opinion, and somehow being proud of that, is what gets you stuck. So I think it ironic that the Buddhist tradition that built itself on these verses calls itself the Terra Vada. I'll leave that for the moment for you to ponder about. But um, I remember also when I was training as a Tibetan Buddhist monk, we studied a body of um, texts which are called in Sanskrit Siddhanta. Uh, And these were basically texts that presented each of the doctrinal systems that Buddhism is composed of. The, 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 the Vipassika, the Sartrantika, the Chittamatra, the Madhyamaka, these schools of philosophy. And each of them was understood as a trumta or a siddhanta, which means um, basically a, a, a position that has definite limits. Anta, same word we spoke of yesterday, dead end. Now raised to a term that's perfectly respectable. And a person who holds a view with Discrete limits is called uh, trumtamawa in Tibetan. Again, the same word, mawa, vada, vadati. A person who utters or speaks fixed opinions. As Buddhism became a doctrinal system, it adopted these terms which conflict with what's going on in one of its earliest sources. But that probably... Uh, is just a reflection 
of the, the struggle to on the one hand be free of views and opinions and on the other hand to run a religious organisation. We come back to this same question. How do you live in the world without opinions and views? But perhaps the, the term in this first verse that stands out, at least it stood out very much for me, was the last line where he says, there's nothing arid about the sage. There's nothing arid. The word in Pali is kila, K-H-I-L-A, kila. Now this is not a term that you find much in Buddhism, even in Theravada Buddhism. There are, however, uh, two uh, sutras, suttas in the in the canon, uh, in which this term kila, barrenness, is described. One of them is uh, in the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, the middle length discourse, is number 16, which is called the Cetto Kila Sutta. Um, it's translated uh, by Bhikkhu Nyanamoli and Bhikkhu Bodhi as Wilderness of the mind. But actually wilderness is not really the right word. Wilderness is certainly a place where things grow. In fact, grow in abundance. But a kila is a, a, a wasteland, a, a desert, an arid place where nothing grows. And interestingly, Bhikkhu Bodhi in the next time he translates this in the Samyutta Nikaya, he translates it as barrenness. Barrenness. That's the image. In some ways, I get the sense that some of the later suttas, discourses, uh, draw upon these early ideas and serve almost as commentaries to them. There are a number of occasions in the canon where a monk will come to the Buddha and say, you said, da-da-da-da-da, what does that mean? And very often, the, 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 the passage quoted is from the Sutta Nipata, is from this very early collection of which these four eights are a part. So again, I think we have to be very cautious in giving to the, 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 the suttas in the early canon, a kind of equivalence of dating. It seems far more reasonable on many grounds to see that actually we're talking about a literature that evolved over a period probably of 100 or 200 or 300 years before it was closed as a canon around, around about 88 uh, BC in Sri Lanka. So what does Kila mean? How do these uh, two other uh, texts, the, the, the Cheto Kila Sutta, which I would translate as uh, the discourse on the aridity of the heart, the aridity of the heart. I prefer to translate Chita as heart rather than mind now. In other words, mind suggests perhaps something too cerebral, 
intellectual, and also in, it's the perfectly adequate term for translating the word mano or manas, um, which is the sixth sense in Buddhism, which is in fact a cognate of the Latin mens, mind, English mind. So let's say heart. When I'm saying heart, I'm, I'm using the word citta. So in the Chetokila Sutta, the discourse on the aridity of the heart, uh, there are six things. Is it six, one, two, or five? Um, qualities that render the heart barren. And these are, the first three of them are doubts. Doubt about the teacher, it says. It doesn't say the Buddha, it says the teacher. Doubt about the teacher. Doubt about the Dharma. Doubt about Sangha. Doubt about the training or the practice. And fifthly, anger towards one's companions. (laughs) Anger and displeasure to one's companions and friends. Now the first three here, probably for most of us, um, flag immediately the idea of the three refuges. Taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma and in the Sangha. And what seems to be implied here in the characteristically negative, double negative language that Buddhist texts are so fond of and that can be so infuriating, (laughs) what seems to be uh, pointed out here is that um, aridity, an arid heart, is one that lacks purpose and direction and effectively a sense of being engaged in the process of a path. In other words, one hasn't yet got to the point where one is practicing the fourth task, which is the cultivation of a way, the cultivation of a path, the bringing into being of a way of life. And what inhibits that? What prevents that? Well, here it's used in the word vichikata, doubt, Now, doubt um, is not here just a kind of intellectual uncertainty. Is this true? Is this false? I don't know. Da-da-da, da-da-da. But something rather more visceral. Um, In the Tibetan tradition, they have a wonderful metaphor for doubt. They say it's like trying to sew a piece of cloth with a two-pointed needle. Now that to me captures doubt much better than some Abhidharmic definition because we know exactly what that would feel like. If you imagine trying to sew with a two-pointed needle then that essentially is saying you won't get anything done. You get stuck. You just get jammed. And in this sense... Aridity is a state of being jammed or stuck. And I think this means more than just being jammed or stuck in, you know, because you're struggling with some conceptual problem, something you can't figure out. That can be very frustrating. You just can't get it. 
But here we're talking about being stuck uh, in a kind of existential sense. Remember that Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, um, although they are, of course, the, uh, the objects of refuge in traditional Buddhism that one focuses one's reverence and devotion towards, if we go down one level of depth um, and strip away the religiosity, as it were, we find that these three ideas are really um, uh, ways of talking about um, how one's life can be focused around core values. So Buddha is simply an image for... uh, a life that's fully awake and alert. We can think of it as an ideal. Uh, We can think of it as inspired by an historical figure. But the important point, as part of a living practice, is that it's something we seek to realize and embody and incarnate in our own life. And not as some distant goal, many lifetimes hence, but actually as a possibility that is open to us in each moment. We can be more Buddha-like and less Mara-like, if you wish. More open rather than closed to a situation. And Dhamma, the second of these two, is, again, it does mean the teachings of Buddhism. But that I feel is a fairly superficial way of understanding it. It actually refers to the path itself, the practice, and the ideas and values and exercise that, uh, and exercises that, that govern or inform that practice, that path, that way of life. So someone who has, suffers from aridity of the heart in this respect is someone who hesitates or stands back or is unwilling to take the risk of engaging with life in an unfamiliar way that seeks, in a way, to go beyond, to transcend uh, our fixed sense of me and mine. And again, we can see here already the kind of opinions and views that I'm comfortable with. And again, we get into these comfort zones um, all the time. Buddhism can easily become a comfort zone where we get stuck. We don't really want to step out of that. We don't want to hear a teaching or uh, read a text that might challenge what we've spent a lot of time you know, convincing ourselves to believe in. It's another kind of aridity. Aridity is, 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 is all the way down. A possibility. And again, Sangha uh, doesn't mean monks and nuns, although that's how it's often understood in popular usage today. But it means uh, the community, the network of relationships with other living beings that supports and enhances and informs one's own way of life. And so aridity here would be an inability or a reluctance or a fear 
of embarking on those kinds of relationships, preferring to stay with you know, what's comfortable and secure, what's predictable in what our friends believe and think and so on. We feel somehow affirmed there, and that might give us a certain degree of security, but it often comes at the cost of somehow shutting down greater possibilities. Doubt about the training, this in Pali is sekka, uh, and I think it's very similar really to the practice of the Dhamma. And anger and displeasure towards one's companions. And again, this clearly is within the zone of the community, the Sangha. So in some sense I think it's a bit repetitive. We don't need to bother too much about that. Now, one, one might argue, a traditional uh, interpretation might be that as long as you're not a good Buddhist, you will be living a very barren life. So therefore, you must take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and then you'll be a nice, flourishing sort of human being. Um, that, I think, again, is, is, is too simplistic. Um, the three refuges, or these three values... Are, are indeed often presented as the sort of entry ritual into the religion called Buddhism. But when we go back to the Sangyutta Nikaya, again one of these early uh, texts in the Pali Canon, and we look at the definition of stream entry, and I'll explain that again in, in, in a minute, when we find the definition of stream entry, the Buddha says... Um, the person who has entered the stream is one who has achieved lucid confidence in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha, and cherishes the virtues of the noble ones. There are four characteristics. And this is the standard definition of stream entry in the, in the suttas, not in what, a, in what is often taught on retreats. So here we have, I think, a, a very striking uh, juxtaposition of metaphor, stream entry and aridity. A stream is the very opposite of a desert or a barren place or a wasteland. The, the stream, if, if anything, is a preeminent metaphor for living a life that is flowing. It's drawing explicitly on the idea of water, which nourishes the soil, which gives birth to anything that lives and on which anything that lives depends, as opposed to a place in which water is absent. And when we think of a wasteland or a desert or an arid place... There's no water. And that aridity is here used as a metaphor for a kind of barrenness of the heart. So the stream entrant, and in classical Buddhism this means the one who has entered the Eightfold Path, in other words, who has uh, come to see for him or herself uh, the stopping, even momentarily, of greed of hatred, of delusion. 
that allows and opens up the possibility of flowing rather than being stuck in a static position. So the opposite of aridity is living a life that engages with a path that is in a state of flow, as modern psychology often calls it. Now we find, um, uh, again, this image of aridity and and water uh, running through many of the metaphors of the tradition. We find it, for example, in the idea of Mara. Mara is the Buddhist devil, the demonic, and Mara is sometimes called Namuchi in Pali, Namuchi. Namuchi is the the Vedic uh, drought demon. Uh, The word Namuchi literally means the one who holds back the water. Namuchi is the, the demon that prevents the monsoon from falling. And in Vedic mythology, Indra, the king of the gods, strikes Namuchi with his vajra, his scepter, and that causes Namuchi to release the water. So once again you have this metaphor of water being held back, or not flowing, and then flowing. So... That's one way in which uh, Kila is understood. The other text, which is in the the Sanyutta Nikaya, chapter 45, uh, also speaks of barrenness, uh, Kila, but in a different way. And here, the barrenness of the mind is described as threefold. And it's our famous threefold, greed, hatred, delusion. Greed and hatred and delusion are understood as barren states of mind. Uh, They're states of mind in um, in which a path cannot really grow. They are states of mind that are compulsive, obsessive, uh, and keep repeating themselves. In that sense, they are the foundations of a certain habitual behavior. Uh, The classical Buddhist idea is, or Indian idea really, is of sangsara. You just go round and round in circles. That's aridity. You're not getting anywhere. Spending a lot of energy, maybe getting some short-term thrills and so on, but in the end, you find yourself back where you started. I remember a text of Alan Watts, who says, you know, we we only eat in order that we can survive to be hungry again. (laughs) (laughs) So, again, we come back to very, very central ideas. um, But here they're being looked at uh, through the lens of a very different metaphor, barrenness and dryness. Nothing growing. And all of this, I think, points very, uh, very clearly towards uh, a way of life uh, that is, in a, in a sense, fully alive or flourishing 
as we've been saying. And again, it somehow confirms the idea that the, the goal of this practice is not to attain nirvana as the sort of the, you know, the summum bonum of Buddhism, but rather to bring into being a way of life, the Eightfold Path, the Fourth Noble Truth, is, I think, here being emphasized rather than the third, you know, the cessation of craving. The cessation of craving or of greed, of hatred, delusion, is actually only the, uh, it's the precursor, it's the precondition for a way of life. But it's not the goal of the path itself. And yet classical religious Buddhism describes the Eightfold Path as the noble Eightfold Path that leads to the end of suffering. In other words, leads to the third noble truth, backwards in a sense. And that's actually what I'm questioning. It looks as though um, over the course of the centuries, possibly, that the primary ideas of the tradition got shifted about to fit the soteriology, in other words, the way in which Indians think about liberation or salvation. Whereas very possibly what this started out as was a framework for living here and now in this world fully. So it's the sage's lack of aridity, greed, hatred, delusion, doubt, anger with one's friends and so on, that stops him getting drawn in to people's opinions. Remember what the text says? It says, when an opinion is stated, the sage is not drawn in. Now, I know very well what it's like to be drawn into an opinion. I hear a discussion, we're having a talk. Um, In fact, I got an email yesterday, a very angry email from someone who was objecting to something I'd said in an article in an Austrian Buddhist magazine. (laughs) (laughs) And they're saying, you say da-da-da, but I say da-da-da. And, of course, I immediately find myself drawn in. No, he's not, that's wrong. I'm right. I'm going to... Anyway... So it's a common human experience to get drawn into opinions. And I find it interesting, actually, to notice the kind of the somatic feel of being drawn into an opinion. It's almost irresistible. We want to defend my point of view. I want to show that this person actually has got it all wrong. But in doing so, I'm basically contradicting the advice that the poet here is suggesting but again I think what aridity suggests here is um, that an arid mind is one that has a kind of uncritical acceptance of common sense opinion Uh, not even common sense uh, simply accepting what an authority figure might say to be true or whatever And because of our assent to that person's authority, we unquestioningly just find ourselves saying, oh, yes, of course. But that doesn't have to be a particular person. It can be uh, a culture, like an academic culture or in a field of politics or something. If we 
if we've bought into that, perhaps unconsciously at some level, whatever is said by those figures we respect is automatically felt to be right. There's no engagement, really. There's just a kind of uncritical assent. So this, again, points to how the kind of of understanding or, or perspective that these poems are trying to articulate um, is one that uh, challenges uh, our, the difficulty we have to think for oneself or respond for oneself. I think what's implicit here is uh, 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 a kind of a challenge or an injunction to think for yourself, to be autonomous in your understanding, not to follow the party line. And um, in that sense, uh, again, we touch on a term I've already mentioned, aparapachya, which means to become independent of others in the practice, which again is understood as a... uh, an, uh, a quality of the one who's entered the stream. All of these things begin to sort of hang together the more that we look at them and we see how they relate to each other in the text. Another metaphor we find in the Dhammapada again supports this idea. It, this is a, a famous verse that I often uh, cite. Just as a farmer irrigates a field just as an arrowsmith fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a block of wood, so does the sage tame the self. Again, there's no suggestion here that you get rid of the self. The the self is what you work with. It's who you are, me, as opposed to you. And the practice here is to irrigate ourselves in the similar way that a farmer irrigates a field. And again, it's the idea of barrenness. An unirrigated field is a keeler. It's a, it's a desert, it's a wasteland. By watering it, by cutting channels into it, by allowing water to nourish it, then it's able to flourish. Exactly the same idea. But perhaps it's at this point that we can have a closer look at this recurrent motif that runs through these poems, and that is the, 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 the tension or the conflict or the opposition between it is and it is not. And I think it's useful now to look at another of our passages. You don't need to flip through it's in the discourse to Kachanagota that is also in your handout. And Kachanagota is asking uh, the Buddha, what is uh, Samaditi? Usually translated as right view, but I'm going to translate it as complete view or complete vision. And this is uh, the Buddha's answer to the question as to what is a complete view. In what way is our sense of the world complete? The word summer 
usually translated as right. In pretty much all other contexts where it's used, it means complete, not right. That's too, I think, moralistic. And again, it plays into this right, wrong, true, false polarity. This is what the Buddha says. He says, by and large, Kachana, this world relies on the duality of it is and it is not. But one who sees the arising of the world as it happens with complete intelligence has no sense of it is not about the world. And one who sees the ceasing of the world as it happens with complete intelligence has no sense of it is about the world. Now again, this is a little, again, lots of double negatives kind of language. So let's try to unpack it a bit. First of all, in this text, when it says it is and it is not, it's not using bhav, abhava, or bhava and vibhava, which are the terms found in the poems, but the more colloquial ati and nati. Is, it is, it is not. But it's the same meaning, more or less. So the world, by and large, relies on the duality of it is and it is not. And in here, I think, really, we're just describing the, 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 what Aristotle calls the, the law of the excluded middle. Something either is A or it is not A. That's how language works. But one who sees the arising of the world as it happens... The world here doesn't mean the whole globe. It just just means life, really. Loka, the place. When a person experiences something coming into being, arising, and again, it's the same word as in, it's samudaya, the second of the four. That's exactly the same word, samudaya, the arising of the world, not the origin of the world, the arising of the world, when you see something arise, and let's just put this more, more concretely, when you go into the garden in the morning and you see that the lettuce has sprouted, you've seen the world arise. And this happens all the time. Things come into being. And in experiencing the coming into being of things, it's not possible to have a sense there is nothing there. It's not, it is not, or it's not there, perhaps would be a better translation. So in other words, the category it is not is refuted each time we see something grow, something emerge, something rise up. And similarly, when we see things die, whether it be another person, whether it be um, a plant, whether it be a civilization, it doesn't really matter. That when you see something die, when you experience the ending of things, the category it is uh, is undermined. So I think the point that's being made here is that it is and it is not might be useful in sort of everyday conventional speech, perhaps unavoidable. 
but become extraordinarily problematic when you take them as the basis for uh, a metaphysical belief system in which you think that there is something called being, with a capital B, or something called nothingness, with a capital N, l'être et le néant. Once you get into that way of looking at the world, you'll find that you're actually contradicted by your sensorial experience of life as a process that's constantly rising and passing away and changing and mutating. So the problem with it is and it is not is that they somehow lock us into a picture of ourselves in the world uh, that uh, conflicts with our immediate sensory experience. And once again, I think this is one of the, uh, the uh, most important things about the practice of cultivating awareness uh, in meditation is that we, we seek to somehow let go of those uh, opinions and narratives and stories, uh, trying to find within ourselves a degree of still, of quiet, in which we're totally open to the sensorial experience in such a way that we're not immediately uh, labelling, categorising, defining, theorising about what's going on, but we're allowing ourselves to be uh, contacted, puzzle, by the impact of life itself. So as the text said yesterday, embrace what you meet and don't be obsessed. Don't grab onto it. Uh, embrace what you perceive. In other words, extend that awareness to include an awareness of how you're rationalizing or talking to yourself about what's going on. Try to hold that within a wide, open awareness. So we could, therefore, suggest that the, the lack of aridity that we find in the sage comes from his or her embrace of the fluid, contingent processes of life itself. And as we saw yesterday, fully knowing life, fully knowing parinya, is defined as ending of greed, ending of hatred, ending of confusion. All of these ideas circle back and reconnect with each other. So to fully know is to know in a non-arid way. And in other European languages, um, this distinction in knowing is, 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 is uh, very um, is stated. You make a distinction in French between savoir and connaître. In German, between uh, kennen und wissen. In Italian, between sapere, sapere and conoscere, isn't it? I'll stick with the French. Connaître means to know another person, or to know a place, or to know a piece of music. Savoir means to know a bunch of facts. 
to know to get information about something. In English, unfortunately, they've been sort of just put into one word: no. We know that it's different to know another person as to know that two and two equals four, but it's not reflected in the actual words themselves. So I think parinya, uh, fully knowing, is is connaître. It's it, it's to know things in the way we know other people. Again, at school I was taught, connaître means knowing other people. In usage, in fact, je connais cette ville, I know this town. Je connais le chemin, I know the way. Je connais ce chanson, I know this song. You don't say savoir, you connaître. So I think perhaps we're getting a, a clue here as to what the poet describes as the sage. Uh, the sage is a person who responds to life not from an a priori position or opinion, but from a kind of intuitive sympathy with the dynamics of the situation. Now again, we might admire this. We might think this is something to aspire for. I certainly do. But in doing so, I'm equally conscious of how, uh, how constantly I fail. That opinions and views and right and wrong intervene very, very quickly. So the practice of awareness, the practice of the Dharma... Uh, the practice of meditation, these kinds of texts and thinking and reflecting about them are all, as it were, trying to uh, illuminate um, another perspective on life altogether. Also, I think, worth bearing in mind, um, the very last phrase of the Buddha's first discourse, the, the turning of the wheel of Dhamma where the four noble truths are introduced, at the end of the talk, one of the five ascetics, a monk called Kondanya, um, gets what the Buddha says. Um, he, it says, his dharma eye opened. And he utters then a very pithy um, expression of his understanding. And he says, whatever is arising is something that ceases, whatever arises ceases, whatever is an arising thing that is also a ceasing thing whatever is a samudayang dhamma is a nirodam dhamma and in the passage with Kachanagota where it says whoever sees the arising of the world whoever sees the ceasing of the world it's the same expressions Samudaya, the arising, Niroda, the falling or the ceasing. Again, it sounds almost like a rather bland truism. Whatever goes up must come down. But one imagines in this context that there's more to it. That there's something about what this person understood at that moment that was related to the very uh, raw experience of life coming about and life 
fading out, uh, as something that is the ongoing rhythm of existence itself. And I think the same is actually implied in our awareness of the breath. We breathe in, something arises, we breathe out, something ceases. Or the, the rising of the, the, the swell of an ocean. That the ocean is rising and falling. And there's something about attuning oneself, being open to that uh, seamless rhythm of existence, non-existence. Again, the language fails in a way. Life that is very much at the heart of what is being spoken of here. Could we try and actually live our lives from that perspective? That perspective before the concepts of is, is not, right, wrong, true, false intervene. Um, we're going to, ha- I'm just going to, I don't, I, I, I realize I've spent virtually the whole time just on one verse. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's a very important verse. Uh, It it contains a lot. Um, But let me just read some of the, the rest of the poem. He who loves teachings that are biased, contrived and obscure, seeing only his own advantage, rests on a peace with shaky foundations. Now again, this seems to me to be a kind of a, a critique uh, or waving a, a warning flag about how we so easily get attracted to complicated doctrines and philosophies like Buddhism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In other words, the word contrived is my translation of sankara, sankata, conditioned is often translated. Um, if a teaching is obscure and, and, uh, and, and kind of paradoxical and weird, we think, hmm, there must be something to that. Um, if it's... Uh, and if we should look at... I, I, and I see myself doing that. Um, the, the, the more sort of uh, convoluted a text is, the more profound it must be. Uh, I pick up a book on philosophy and I don't understand a word of it and I think, phew, that must be pretty profound. (laughs) It could be that the person doesn't know what on earth they're talking about. (laughs) So again, this is just flagging how um, there does appear to be a part of, of ourselves that has a kind of perverse attraction to things that don't make sense. (laughs) and again if we feel that if we could somehow learn to speak this sort of jargon then that would be very much to our own advantage we'd be somehow special and different and we'd know some kind of coded discourse that only other small circle of initiates can share but this says the poet although it might give us a degree of of, of well-being of peace you know with the true believers or whatever. It rests on very shaky foundations. It's an unstable ground because it's based really on the construction of a whole bunch of ideas and opinions and views and 
ideas picked up from here and there, and there's not really much it's resting on. And again, this can be very challenging, this kind of perspective, because we might have invested a lot in believing certain things. Then he goes on, you seize the teaching that suits those views to which you're committed and cannot give up. In other words, why is it that we're drawn to a particular idea or a philosophy or a doctrine or a, a political position? Very often simply because that reflects our own opinions. Um, I don't normally quote Carlos Castaneda, but I will hear. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a passage in one of the books, I think it's Journey to Ixtlan, where Don Juan says to Carlos, um, Carlos is always pestering Don Juan with these questions. And Don Juan turns to him and says, you're not looking for an answer to your questions, you're looking for the reflection of your own opinions. Which I think is it's, I think it's very true. And it's very much the point, I think, that's being made here. According to our commitments, to what we're invested in, do we reject or embrace a teaching? In other words, our lives are so often governed by common sense or received opinion or what we've, for one reason or another, ended up believing. And he's challenging all of that. In an earlier verse, I think number two, is it? Yeah, the second of the two verses ends with a, a very a very simple line in Pali, very easy to, un, very easy to translate, as I know myself, so I articulate myself. Now the word I've translated as articulate is the same word, vadati. Give voice to an opinion. So depending on my kind of primary uh, assumptions, beliefs, views about what I am, who I am, that's the basis on which I then give voice to what I think is true to notice that connection, that we're constantly just reiterating, repeating and propagating opinions that are often not even terribly well digested. Nowhere, it says, does a lucid one hold contrived views about it is or it is not, being or non-being. How could he succumb to them having let go of illusions and conceit He's uninvolved, or she's uninvolved. Now again, I don't, there's a danger here that we think that what this is talking about is a total distancing and cutting oneself off from life. And the Indian renunciant tradition would kind of reinforce that view. But from what we've seen here, that can't really be the case. We're talking about a loss of aridity. We're talking about a life that's you know, committed to a flow, a stream. It's about an engagement. It's about a participation in what's going on. So this uninvolvement is being involved in particular positions, beliefs, opinions, views. That's what you're not involved in. And that allows an engagement or an involvement with the unfolding of life itself in moment to moment. 
Uh, and what's very beautiful, I think, in the Zen tradition, uh, in the koans, particularly the early koans of the Tang period, is that they illustrate in the exchanges between the teacher and the student responses that are not just coming out of beliefs and opinions and views. If you answer the master with just a Buddhist opinion, you get hit on the head with a stick. (laughs) What the master is trying to do is provoke you to respond uh, in a non-arid way, in a way way that's not involved with belief. So in other words, it's a philosophy of intuition and spontaneity and risk. Because very often we don't like saying certain things we we actually feel are quite true because we don't want to you know, upset others or get into a conflict or whatever it might be. So the involved, those who are sort of tied into beliefs, get drawn into conflicting opinions about the Dharma, like me and this fellow who emailed me yesterday about my article. But what opinion can you dispute with one who's uninvolved and how? Such a person, in a sense, becomes uh, you know, uncontactable. You, there's nothing you can sort of latch onto or grasp onto. There's a kind of freedom there. He doesn't take up or discard any view. He's shaken them all off. Right here. Ideva. Ida. Here. Which I think is a good point to start. Okay, so um, I don't need to remind you. Yeah, we have a walking period now for half an hour and a sitting at 11. And I'll see you again this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.